Well, everyone on this planet, as Piero just mentioned, is seeking an identity. We are seeking an identity. Identity is such a powerful motivator. People have a deep internal desire to identify as something, to identify with a group, to be part of something bigger. Identity answers the existential questions, who am I? What am I supposed to be doing? What do I stand for? And there's so much focus on personal growth today and personal identity, and much of it is not good. But how are we supposed to be growing and changing into the best version of ourselves? Christianity, I will tell you, is the only worldview that is going to answer that question. Christianity is not merely a belief, and I would even say it is primarily an identity. It is an identity that flows from a belief, because we are identified with Christ. So what does it actually mean, especially as it relates to that pesky issue of sin, the pesky issue of right and wrong? Let's find out. So if you're not over in Romans chapter 6, please head on over there. We are making our way through Romans. If you're visiting with us, which several of you are, thank you. Uh, We preach expositionally here, and so hopefully the main point of my sermon is the main point of the passage. We park ourselves in one passage We interpret it, and then we let the Holy Spirit do the hard work of applying that to our lives. And uh, spoiler alert, this one's not going to be real hard to apply to our lives. This one's coming for all of us. It is very, very easily applicable. Last week, we looked at the origin of sin, where it came from, and how that affects us today. Sin started with our federal head, Adam. Original sin then spread to all men and then death with it because all sin. Sin has always brought death. However, God's plan, of course, didn't stop there. He gave us a new federal representative, Jesus Christ, his own son. And while Adam's sin brought death, Jesus' righteousness and his sacrifice, of course, brought us life through faith. We saw how profoundly effective the work of Jesus is. There is no way that we can out-sin his grace, his super abundant grace, because while sin brings death, the super abounding grace of Jesus brings us life. It's greater than sin, which sets us up perfectly for chapter six, because one might be tempted, as I think Paul is responding to here, to say, okay, great, Paul, what are you saying here? So we can just sin all we want. It doesn't matter how we live. And then this superabounding grace of yours just flows in and and covers everything. God is just going to forgive us. We're just going to keep sinning and God's going to keep forgiving. Is that how that works? And Paul's ambiguous answer is one big fat nope. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul anticipating, or probably more likely responding to another Jewish brother's argument, picking apart this gospel that Paul is presenting. The Jews, remember, the students of the law, this is how they live. They obey the law, and now they're very nervous and saying, Paul, what are you talking about here? We don't need the law. The law is our justification. Of course, we need the law. Of course, the law is still in effect. It's just in a different way because of Jesus. The idea, of course, of what they're worried about is lawlessness, or to use the theological term, antinomianism, against God's law, meaning we are free in Christ 
to live however we want to because we're forgiven. I don't know if you've ever run into anyone who has ever thought that as their worldview philosophy. It's cool, man. I'm free in Christ. I can do whatever I want. I actually have never run into a person like that. Maybe it's God's grace that I've never run into a person like that. I think we've seen beyond a shadow of a doubt, of course, that we are still called to obey the moral law just in a different way. How does Paul respond? In light of God's superpounding grace, he said, can we just live however we want? He says, by no means. Or as King James says, if you're rolling King James this morning, God forbid, he says. Paul will go on to prove his point. The first reason he provides, how can we who died to sin still live in it? To die to something is to be free from all its power and influence. What does it mean that we've died to sin? He'll spend the rest of the passage, of course, unpacking that. And he immediately digs in by explaining what it means to be a Christian, one who is united to Christ. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul explains what it means that we've died to sin, and he ties that in with baptism. Paul asks them, don't you know, or again, as King James, which is just too good not to mention, know ye not that if you're a Christian, you've been baptized into Christ Jesus, and you were baptized into his death? We were buried with him, baptized into death for a reason, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, guys, we will be raised to walk in newness of life. When Paul speaks here of baptism, think not so much of the mechanics of baptism, although that's important too, but think more of baptism as kind of a metaphor for the whole conversion experience. When baptized into Christ, you could say that means coming to faith in Jesus Christ. What, what actual water baptism represents is what that, what that is, the significance of that. Baptism itself, water baptism is the initial entrance into the faith. In the first century, usually those things were very close together. You believed and you were baptized, probably within minutes. They just tried to find water somewhere and you were baptized into the church, right? An unbaptized believer in the first century was a bit of an unknown commodity. You were supposed to be baptized. And indeed, we're going to welcome probably 10 people in a couple weeks who are going to be baptized here at Highlands Bible Church, which is just amazing. Ten people who will stand in the water in John and Sue's pool and will say, this is what happened to me. This is who I was before Christ. This is who I am now in Christ. And I need you as my church family to help me be a Christian. Amen. Baptism, when you go under the water, it signifies being united to Christ in his death. Just like Christ was in the tomb, where under the water we are then dead. We are dead to sin. We come up out of the water. The water cleanses us, forgives us, and we are raised just as Christ was resurrected then to walk in new life. It compares the finality of physical death of Christ, of course, with the reality through faith of our spiritual death to sin. Sin has to die in our lives. We're then born again to new life in Christ. Death is final. Dead people can't do anything, especially sin. 
When you're dead one day, you will finally stop sinning. Paul says, start acting like that now. Start considering yourself dead to sin now. So being baptized into Christ's death means like Christ, we're dead, spiritually dead to the power and influence of sin. And now we're also raised and resurrected with him to new life. And church, what just happened here is Paul turned a major theological corner. This whole time we've been talking about justification, right? Being declared innocent of our sins through faith in Jesus Christ. He now turns the corner to sanctification. Sanctification, the process, the ongoing continual process until the day that we actually die of becoming more like Christ and less like sin in our actual lives. This is the primary calling of every single Christian. Be sanctified. Be killing sin. Calvin wrote, newness of life is to be pursued by Christians as long as they live. And so let's return to the original question Paul poses in response to the rather ridiculous pot shot, probably, by his Jewish brothers. Judas Pray a prayer, raise your hand, do whatever you want, cry a tear, and then you just go on living your life like nothing ever happened. And Paul says, God forbid. No. You are now then on a journey. You are united with Christ, and now you're on a journey of sanctification, growing into Christ's likeness. And that does not include being okay with sin in your life. And so I'll say the first point this way. Those who died to sin can't live with it. Those who died to sin can't live with it. In other words, sin is incompatible now with who you are as Christians. Your new nature, sin is incompatible with it. Christians, being united with Christ in his death are dead to sin, meaning sin should have no influence on how you live your life. Sin should not get a vote in how you live your life, in the decisions that you make. Instead, we are united with Christ, and we are the opposite of sin. We are looking towards holiness and sanctification. 1 Peter 2.24 ties this uh, together very, very well with Christ's sacrifice. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Watch this. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness because by his wounds you are healed. You see the sacrifice that Peter says, this is why Jesus was sacrificed, so that you, guess what, Christians, this is your main purpose, you might die to sin and live to righteousness. It is a major misunderstanding of Christianity that it is just one more internal private belief that you can believe amongst a myriad of other options of belief in this world. That's where we get into, oh, well, Christianity works for you. That's cool. That's good that you have that belief. Christianity is not like any other religion at all. It is not an internal belief, primarily. It is an identity that flows from that internal belief. It is a lifestyle. It is an identity that we walk out. There is a huge difference then in sinning, because we all will sin, and you're all smart people, you might be thinking that already, like, okay, well, we all sin, so what does that mean? But there's a huge difference between kind of bumping into sin, and and I'm going to sin, we're going to sin every day, or being okay with sin in your life. 
That's a huge difference, and that's what Paul's talking about here. Christians, you cannot be okay with sin existing in your life. You can't be. We're all going to sin in the generic sense, but we can't keep sins around like pets. We need to repent, and we need to change, and we need to grow. Paul's pointing out here that death and life then are polar opposites. Life is completely incompatible with death. That's why he's using those two metaphors, right? Death and life, John Murray writes this, death and life cannot coexist. We cannot be both dead and living with respect to the same thing at the same time, right? Basic biology, I would imagine, you're either dead or you're alive. You can't be both, one or the other. That's what Paul says. You're either a Christian and dead to sin or you're not. Think last week, we were talking about Adam. Either you're in Adam and that's all you know is sin or you're in Christ and all you know is getting busy in sanctification. Again, this is Paul responding to the absurdity of this accusation. Do you think Paul's superabounding grace just encourages a Christian to sin more because they have the eternal forgiveness platinum card or something? Absolutely not. That is not who we are. Murray again helps us here. He says, this is the identity of the believer. He died to sin. A believer cannot, therefore, live in sin. If a man lives in sin, he is not a believer. If we use sin as a realm or a sphere, then the believer no longer lives in that realm or sphere. It's a beautiful quote tying together what we're talking about here. And while we're on the subject of sin, guys, let's define sin. Sin is missing the mark. Sin is violating God's law. Sin is anything that God says in here is sin. God's the one that gets to define sin, not our culture. Our culture does not get to define morality. And if they did, they're doing a terrible job of defining morality. The Bible defines morality. The Bible defines sin. Not the Overton window that says, okay, well, this is acceptable. This was acceptable back in the 50s. Now that it's 2023 and we've become, you know, so far more intelligent than those Cretans who lived back in the dark ages of the 1950s and 60s. Now we're so much more sophisticated. Now this is okay. No, you, you don't get to change the goalposts. God defines sin. So we've got to be very, very clear about the definition of sin. The Bible contains definitions of what is sin and what is not. We passed one not too long ago, one of Paul's vice lists in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 28. This is, this is uh, people who don't have God, who reject God. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what not, ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. He goes on. All that sin, the Bible tells us what sin is. There are plenty of viceless in, in Scripture where Paul tells us what sin is. You can't continue in sin if you're a Christian. You can't continue in gluttony, in idolatry, in living with your girlfriend or your boyfriend. You can't continue in drunkenness or substance abuse. And when we run into those things, we need to stop, we need to repent, we need to turn around and head towards righteousness, what God calls us to do, not 
continue to live in it. So you can't be a gay Christian. And I want to be very, very careful how I say that. By gay Christian, I mean someone who is going to continue to live in a homosexual lifestyle and call themselves a Christian. It doesn't work. But you can be a Christian who is struggling with same-sex desire. Do you understand how I did that? It's very important, right? So if you're going to call yourself a Christian, your life can't be characterized with sin that's in it all the time. And when I had a conversation with someone who was gay, and that was his question. He said, but you all sin. It's like, okay, but Romans 6, right? We're not okay with it. We need to repent. The difference is what Paul says, continue to live in sin. The difference is repentance. When I sin, I need to repent. I don't need to just keep going. Church, we have to make this a safe space to work through struggling with sin of all shapes and varieties. But we have to make this a dangerous place to be hiding sin and to be living in sin and to be okay with sin. Do we understand the difference of that? Right? And I will say this, just continuing on on the LGBTQ theme, I believe in my heart that there is going to be a tsunami of refugees from that movement. I really do. I believe that people are going to get to the end of that lifestyle and they started it so early now, they're going to realize that it's empty and they're going to come here. And we need to be ready for them. Think about even those who are trapped in, in gender confusion. They might not even look like the ways we want them to look. It might be shocking, but they're going to come. And we need to be ready in compassion with that as well. Paul kicks off things very clearly in this passage. Does the superabounding grace in God in Jesus Christ mean we can just continue to sin and be forgiven? God forbid. Reason being, those who died to sin cannot live in it. It's impossible. They're dead. As you may expect, Paul's going to continue to build his case. Look at verse 5. For if we've been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Paul's using his classic for, because, opener. You've got to expect it at this point. We've seen it like 20 times already. He's answering the question, why is it true then that a Christian cannot be okay with sin? Why can't a Christian live in sin? He further explains what it means to be baptized into Christ Jesus. It means that we're united with Christ. This is the doctrine of the union with Christ. Being united with Christ is critical to understanding our identity as Christians. To be united with Christ means to be part of Christ. Through faith, we become a Christian, a Christian right? It's in the name. And something happens. Well, actually, a lot of things happen then, but they all flow from being a Christian as our primary identity. Once again, Paul is going to focus on the death and resurrection of Christ and how that affects our spiritual lives, particularly in relation to sin. We have been united both with the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. He says, because even if we've been united with Christ in death, we're also going to be united to Christ in the resurrection because Christ didn't stay dead. 
Christ rose from the grave. So therefore, we're united to both parts of that through faith. He continues, our old self was crucified and killed for a reason. He says that sin would be rendered powerless in our lives, that we'd be no longer enslaved or ruled by sin. Again, remember last week, death reigned because of sin. Now, Chris, you come to Christ. You're united with Christ. Guess what? Christ defeated death and sin. Therefore, sin should no longer reign in your life as a Christian. Something's dead, it can't affect you, right? It has no, you know, there's a big difference between a live lion and a dead lion, right? The dead lion's not going to hurt you, right? A live one will, of course. If you're dead, you're freed from the power of it. Dead people can't do anything. Of course, we said they can't sin anymore. And this is particularly the way that we need to look at sin. As Christians, we need to look at being dead to its influence, I can't let that have power over me because as Paul just pointed out, it actually doesn't have power over you anymore. Any power that you give to sin, guess what? You're the one giving it to it. You're the one feeding it. You're the one giving it the opportunity because theologically, Christologically, it's dead to us through what Christ has done. Look at verse 8 of Romans 6. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Did you catch that? Not only have we died with Christ, right? He says we've risen with Christ. We know what happened to Christ. He died, he was resurrected, right? And therefore... Christ lives so that we will live spiritually and one day eternally, forever. So it is with the Christian, again, critical to note, the one united with Christ, we die to sin and we are united to him and alive then in righteousness. This is final. This is why he's using the language of death and life in this. We die to the influence and the power of sin in our lives and we exchange it for the influence of the power of who? Of God, of righteousness in our lives. This is the purpose for that which we are saved, sanctifying. God freed us from the slavery of sin to become more like God. That's the reason he saved us. So I'll say the second point this way. Death to sin produces life. Death to sin produces life. Christians, if you're looking for the most fulfilling life that you can possibly have, full of joy and contentment and peace, kill all known sin in your life. Get rid of it all. Every time you see it, kill it. Consider yourself dead to sin. Puritan John Owen famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. The life we live now, the one that is free from the power of sin, right, is only through being united through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Galatians 2.20 tells us this, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's our life, church. It's a complete change of identity. Again, not just a privately held belief. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, I've, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed, right? That's what he just said. The old self is crucified. The old has passed. The new has come. 
One quote I read this week said that believers' lives have two distinct parts, just like world history, B.C. and A.D., before Christ and after deliverance. There's, there's two parts to our lives. Right? The old sinful self is dead. And some of us have some pretty dramatic conversion stories. Some of us, shameful to admit that I'm one of them, have these random cringe moments. Anybody have random cringe moments where you just think like, that was me? I did that? I was like that? It comes at the weirdest times, too. You just think about who you were like. Sickening, embarrassing, better word, mortifying. Because that's what that old person is, dead. That's how we have to consider it. And I'll tell you, church, if we in those cringe moments are just going to look back to try to think of some emotional time where we may have cried a tear and raised our hand and asked Jesus to be into our hearts at some given time, that's not going to cut it. We've got to remember that that old person is dead. It's not just me trying to be a better me. It's that old person is dead and the new has come. That's what Paul's talking about. One author noted that the first step in victory over sin is the believer's life to consider yourself dead to sin. Even if you didn't have a coming to faith story of shameful debauchery, don't be discouraged, right? We saw last week three families, six beautiful kids up there. We want them to have the most boring testimonies the world has ever seen. We want them to say, that's the gospel, I want in, and I want to spend the rest of my life living, and I don't want them to have to mess with sin in order to prove that that's true. That's what we want. We want boring testimonies. We want them to be spared the terrible realities of sin and all the shame that comes with it. So if you have a boring testimony, praise God. Make no mistake, though. Every single person, even those kiddos, right? As we said last week, born into the sin of Adam, dead in sins and transgression, and only through a conscious placing of faith in Jesus Christ can you be made new. And anytime that happens, that's a miracle. It doesn't matter if you were addicted to drugs and alcohol or whatever else and came from that background or if you grew up in church and that's all you've ever known. Praise God for the way that he saves people in Jesus Christ. And so ask yourself this, Christians. Do you consider yourself dead to sin? How much do you consider sin's influence in your life? Where are you still being ruled by sin's power? Or are you dead to it? Do you give sin a say in how you live your life? Christ died for you to be freed from the power of sin in your life. That's what he's calling us to Unfortunately, however, when we're free from the power of sin in our lives, we're never going to be free from the presence of sin in our lives until we are with Christ, which is the whole reason that before we get here, we need to be preparing our souls to get there by growing in holiness. Paul's now going to drop some commands as he ends the passage. Look at verse 12. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make it obey its passions. Do not present your members as sin at, to sin, as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Here's another classic 
Pauline tactic. He just spent all this time telling you why before he ever tells you what to do. If you're a nerdy theologian, they call that the indicative before the imperative. He tells them why before he tells them what they have to do. He could have made this letter a lot shorter. He could have just said, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Farewell. But he didn't. He spent all of this time telling them why that is the case. Because why? Because we're justified. Because we're declared innocent through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. So therefore, then, as, your, as, as that's your foundation, now go. Now do it. Here's your command. Think of it this way. When we sin, we need to involve, Paul says, other parts of our bodies in sin. When we think lustful thoughts after someone, we're using our minds in order to do that. When we curse others out, we're using our mouth and our tongues and our words. When we harbor bitterness or resentment, we're using our hearts and our spirits and our thoughts. We need our hands to continually lift that fork to our mouths, right? In gluttony. We need our fingers to write that vicious text message that we shouldn't be writing to someone. Our parts of our body are involved in sin. Literally, you need your legs to carry you to a sinful space. Paul says, don't do that. You're united with Christ. Your body parts literally should not be used to sin. They're Christ's now. You're united with Christ. All of your body parts should be used then to glorify God in righteousness. Don't use them for sin. Use them for righteousness, he said. Remember what Christ accomplished for you. Remember what the law does according to Paul. It only increases the, transition, the, the transgression we said last time. He says, you are not under law anymore. You're under grace. Remember that. The law didn't save you. The law can't save you. Grace saved you. So now go forward under grace. He says, Christ in his crucifixion and resurrection has paved the way for you to be dead to sin and alive to righteousness. And now you have to walk that out. Who does he say this responsibility is? He says it's ours. You need to do this. Note that he never commands us in this passage. He doesn't say, be dead to sin. Be alive to righteousness. No, Christ did that. That happened in the past. That's all past tense passive in the Greek. Something that happened to you. But when we get here... He says, do this because of what Christ did for you. This is something that has been done for you in the past. Therefore, go, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. So now, church, we've got to live like it. Victory is sure. Christ has done the work. Victory is here. Do it. Get after it. In other words, get after sanctification. Third point, it is our responsibility to be fighting sin and growing in holiness. It's our responsibility to be fighting sin and growing in holiness. In other words, sanctification is your responsibility because Christ fulfilled his. He did the work perfectly. Now this is our responsibility. We are united with him. And sometimes we can over-spiritualize this, can't we? I read a quote. I've been rereading Jerry Bridges' uh, Pursuit of Holiness and Practice of Godliness. And if you want some really convicting books in the morning, read those. They're very good and very helpful. But he says simply, a lot of times we pray for victory over sin and we should just be obeying. 
Yeah, pray. Give me victory over the sin. Sometimes I think he's up there going, I already have. Get after it. I've given you everything you need. I've given you the word. I've given you the church. I've given you my spirit. Now, that being said, some sins are dogs, man. They will be with us for a long time. And sometimes it is a bloody battle that goes on for a long time. But Christ has won the war, church. And that means we don't give up on the battle. We don't just stop fighting. We continue. That is literally what we were saved for. Ephesians chapter 1. Wow, pages are super sticky in the summer. I'm afraid I'm going to rip my Bible. Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, right? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Watch this. That we should be holy and blameless before him. Why did he do that? Why did he save us? Ephesians just told us that. So that we can be sanctified. So that we can be holy. So that we can grow in what Paul's calling us to do. One theologian put it this way. Holiness starts where justification finishes. And if holiness does not start, we have the right to suspect that justification never started either. Christians who live with sin in their lives cannot faithfully be called Christians is what he's saying. We are saved to be holy. Think about it this way if you're not thinking about it any of those other ways. Heaven is a completely holy place. There's not a drop of sin in heaven. So why would you play with sin here knowing that in heaven there's not any sin at all? Prepare yourselves now for the holiness that heaven will be. And sometimes Christians, we can mull about navel-gazing, cool, I'm saved. What am I actually supposed to be doing with my life? I mean, I got that pesky hell situation taken care of. I mean, you know, now what? We get after holiness, church. We kill sin in our lives. We don't let sin reign. It's our responsibility to be fighting sin and growing in holiness. We've got to remember that we are God's and we live for God's glory as ones who have literally been rescued from death. Our bodies, our brains, our hands, our thoughts, they're all God's, not ours, and we don't use them for sin. And church, I gotta say too, we have to resist the pull of private holiness here because again, that's gonna wanna push us into this little box and say, yes, I believed and I really do believe, so I'm just gonna make myself privately the best, holiest person that I could ever possibly be. Okay, yes, we need to do that, but the point is we're supposed to be showing, manifesting God's glory in the whole world. We've done much damage to Christianity by keeping it all to ourselves. The holiness that we grow in, the sanctification that we grow in, the sin that we put to death has to be manifested to the world. And so yes, even in things that we see in the world, in the world, if God is God and he's king of kings and he's sitting on his throne, then everything is God's. And so we see sin in his world, we speak out against that sin. And so, yes, we do speak out about all of these things. Publicly, holiness is not meant to be kept to ourselves. Wherever we go, we bring light, we fight sin, we grow in holiness. So, yes, we push back against the ideas, the arguments, the worldviews that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. Church, 
Being dead to sin is considering ourselves alive to Christ with our minds as well. We've got to engage our minds. We don't let our minds be swayed by anti-God worldviews and philosophies. So yes, we push back against anything that is against God. We push back against the LGBTQ political dumpster fire that's happening right now. We demolish the arguments for abortion. We speak out against CRT and intersectionality. We speak out about these things that are gaining traction in our schools. We have these long conversations with our kids and we point out the, the illogical sewer that is the secular worldview right now today. We dismantle these things. This is a command that's not based on our feelings, church. It's based on the facts of what Christ has accomplished for us. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your body, period. And so church, again, where are we, and I include myself in this, where are we obeying sin instead of obeying God? And some sins are stubborn sins. They take years to defeat, but that doesn't mean we call off the battle because Christ has won the war. Sometimes we need to get others involved in the fight. But not much of the time we have to also realize that Christ has actually done so much more for us than we realize. Here's the big idea this morning. We are united with Christ to be separated from sin. We are united with Christ to be separated from sin. I don't mean that to say that we should be separated from the world, right? That's the, that's the illusion and the mistake of asceticism, monks and all of that, right? Although sometimes it would be nice if we could hide from the clown world that we currently live in. I understand that as well. That's the era of legalism. We don't have to, we're here. We're in it. I mean that there's a great contrast here. And the great contrast is that we are united with Christ and therefore separated from sin in our lives and in the world. Our union with Christ carries a comprehensive worldview that is an identity transformation. Our faith is not and cannot be, church, just a privately held belief. Because then we'll play right into the worldview that says, that's good for you, but this is good for me. No, if it's not good for me, right, it's not good for you either. The point is, Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords of all things. If he's God, he's God of all things. And so it's not just a, a subjective, squishy, personal belief. Are we to continue in sin so that God's grace can just cover it all up? God forbid. We who died to sin can't live with it. What's the source of life, of joy, of peace, of victory? Killing sin. Sanctification. Getting after it. Death to sin produces life. What if we're supposed to, what are we supposed to be doing rather as Christians? Exactly that. Not letting sin reign in our mortal bodies. We're supposed to be killing sin on all fronts. In other words, those who are justified are called to be sanctified. That's the point. J.C. Ryle wrote the classic work on holiness and sanctification. There are way too many convicting quotes. But among them, he posits that sanctification is not just talk. It's not just a religious feeling or occasionally doing the right thing. Sanctification is the result of a vital union with Jesus Christ. It is the outcome, church, of our justification. It is the only certain evidence that you actually are a Christian. Jesus said, you will know a tree by its fruit. The fruit that should be on our branches 
is the growth of sanctification. We've experienced a dramatic and comprehensive change of identity, one that is established by faith in our union with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we're united with Christ to be separated from sin. Father, thank you for your goodness, your love, your grace. Lord, what a passage that we all have immediate application to because we all struggle with sin in all its forms. Father, would you strengthen our resolve based upon our union with Christ to fight sin with everything we can. Father, would you help us to understand the seriousness of sins and the calling of growth. Lord, would you be with those that are struggling with sins that have been, along, been around them for a long time? Would you give them a new perspective? Would you give them a new courage? Would you give them maybe the courage to speak out and involve other people, other Christians in this fight against sin? Would you do much good as we seek to not let sin reign in our mortal bodies? And Lord, maybe for those who have not yet made that decision to bow the knee to Jesus Christ, who have not yet then been united with Christ through faith, Father, would you open their eyes to what can be theirs by being united to you in your life, your death, your resurrection by faith. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.